So a really short recap from last week. Um, yes, we're looking at the fifth chapter, which is called The Way to the Beyond, Parayana in um, Pali. And what I was saying last week is the text is very old, at least a part of it is very, very old, perhaps the earliest Buddhist text that we know of. It's actually in three parts, the fifth chapter. There's a prologue, which is a story of a man called Bhavari. And then he sends 16 of his disciples to go and see the Buddha. And then the middle section of the text is question and answers with these 16 they're called Brahmins in the text, but uh, those of you who were here last week I will, might remember that I questioned whether they really were Brahmins, but that doesn't matter very much. So then there's the question and answers. And they ask just over 40 questions between them. So there's quite a lot of questioning of the Buddha. And then there's an epilogue, which again I think is later. So I think the prologue and the epilogue are added on to the text later on. This week and next week we're looking at the very oldest part of the text, and in a way, this part of the text I find the most interesting because it's so old. So I've told you about the prologue, Bhavari. He sends his 16 disciples to see the Buddha and they ask questions. Last week, though, I questioned whether that really did happen in the prologue. Um, for various reasons, which I won't go into now. Um, they were philological reasons, I found out last week. Thank you for that, Frank. <laughs> for philological reasons, um, I, came, I came to the conclusion that the prologue wasn't really the earliest part of the text. And that gave me the freedom to look at the text and think, hmm, I wonder about this. And I even wonder whether such a man as Bhavari existed or whether it isn't just in the figment of some later Buddhist monk's imagination. Now, I didn't tell you why I thought that. I forgot to tell you. The reason is because Bhavari has this experience. A goddess comes to see him and tells him about the Buddha, and he's overwhelmed with faith. And he doesn't go and see the Buddha. Did you find that strange? Strange, isn't it? And I forgot to talk about that. That is a really weird thing. He's so overwhelmed by faith. And he goes and sends another bunch of people to see the Buddha, and I thought that was weird. And then, when these other six, these 16 disciples of Bhavari come to see the Buddha, they don't mention Bhavari once, and nor does the Buddha. And that made me think, mm, I wonder if actually Bhavari actually existed, or that was just a kind of frame for the story, having this Bhavari chap. Um, and then that gave me the freedom to think, well, who were these 16 people that were asking the Buddha these questions? And when you look at the way they're relating to the Buddha and the kind of questions they're asking, I can't help thinking that they were just the Buddha's disciples, 16 disciples of the Buddha. Quite simple, really. There's so much faith. They express so much faith and longing for enlightenment that I think, well, they were probably just disciples of the Buddha. And then, having given myself that kind of freedom to think in that kind of way, I began to think, well, of course, Brahmins are men. They're priests, they're men. So I've always thought of these 16 people as being men. But then I thought, well, maybe they weren't. Maybe they were a mixture of men and women. In the text, it doesn't say who they are, what uh, gender they are. It just doesn't say. So um, 
Anyway, I found that all very exciting. It doesn't make much difference, you know, to the question and answers, but it's just, you know, quite an exciting way of thinking. So we're looking at these question and answers this week. There are over 40 questions, so there's no question of me going through each question and answer. I just can't do that. It'd just take far too long. But last week, I, I grouped them into three main kind of um, categories. First of all, questions about important matters, spiritual matters. Well, matters about life, really. Where on earth do all the different kinds of suffering come from? What is the nature of freedom? What is the state of peace? Can you tell me about the knowledge that frees? Can you tell me how to remove ignorance? And then there's a bunch of questions about wise men or wise women. And that they want to know what are they like? A wise person, an enlightened being, what are they actually like? So questions are things like, who in the world is contented Is there anyone who isn't full of agitation? Who deserves to be called a great man? When people talk about wise men, do they mean knowledge or the way they live? That's a good question, isn't it? How can I recognise a wise man? Third category, a bunch of questions about how to actually live the spiritual life. How should people live and work? Explain to me how I can put an end to craving. How do we cross the ocean? Do you remember last week I talked about that being one of the main symbols, in a way, one of the main metaphors of the spiritual life? Life is an ocean and you have to cross it. So how do I cross the ocean? Can a student of yours find the calm of enlightenment for himself? And what is it that you abandon in order to find enlightenment? There are more other, more diverse questions, but these are the main ones, I think. So there's quite a wide range of questions that they ask, and it's possible, I don't know how many of you have picked up the text since last week and had a look at them, but it's possible that when you read the Buddha's answers, you might be disappointed. (laughs) Because he seems to say the same thing over and over again. Not the same thing for every question, but for many of the questions, he says more or less the same thing. There were a few very startling times when he really gives a very strange answer. And you think, what on earth does that mean? But most of the time, it's pretty uniform in his answers. And you may think, well, this is a bit dull, really, a bit boring. You could say that the Buddha's answers to all these different questions broadly cover two main themes and I'm going to look at the first theme this week and the second theme next week I'm not going to deal with the questions in any particular order I'm just going to take them out as I kind of found them interesting really I'm not going to follow the the order of the questions in the text so firstly what is a wise man like I'm afraid it's all in terms of man in the text. That's the way they've been translated. I presume it's the same in the Pali, the original. But I think you can understand it means what is a wise person like, a wise man and wise woman. A wise anything. What's a wise being? What's a wise being like? So we're going to look at um, an answer that the Buddha gives to one of these people, 
Brahmins perhaps, perhaps not. Metagu, his, name's, his or her name is Metagu. So the Buddha says, I'm going to quote you here from Tanisaro's um, translation. Whom you know as a true Brahmin, a master of knowledge, owning nothing, not attached to sensual existence. He has certainly crossed this flood. Having crossed beyond, he is untainted and free from doubt. One who has discarded this clinging is a man who has realised the highest knowledge. Free from craving, undistressed, desireless, he has crossed beyond birth and old age, I say. So I'm just going to say a few words about that. Be into, you know, just see what your response is to that. What is your response to that answer? I'm just going to say a few words about it. It's quite interesting. He says, whom you know is a true Brahmin. So he's talking about Brahmins here. The Buddha's not a Brahmin. The Buddha's a kind of an independent spiritual teacher. Um, last week I told you a bit about Brahmins. They were, you, you, you can't become a Brahmin. You're born into a caste uh, as a Brahmin. So you're born as a Brahmin. And what the Buddha seems to be doing here, he's, he's redefining the Brahmin because everyone would, have, would know what a Brahmin is. Just like if I said you were a priest, you'd know more or less what I meant by a priest. So they'd know what a Brahmin was and they'd be familiar with them. And they'd understand that a Brahmin is someone who is supposed to be practicing the spiritual life but as we saw last week uh, in the story Bhavari was a Brahmin and he was a very good Brahmin if he existed that is a very good upright noble man but there was a rogue Brahmin in the story as well wasn't there who came and um, cursed Bhavari he's a very negative character so you've got these two people one a very good man one a very bad man both Brahmins so what the Buddha's saying is a true Brahmin. He uses that word, true Brahmin, a true Brahmin. Not just, you know, not just because they're born that way, but a true Brahmin is someone who has reached that state themselves through their own effort. Remember th- something I said last week, which I found very, very startling, was in all the question and answers and it goes on for a number of pages and they each one of these people whoever they are they all call the Buddha something blessed one the man who has crossed the flood the thirst breaker all sorts of loads and loads of titles they call him but not once do they call him the Buddha and what I was saying last week was I think that's because they hadn't actually coined that term for him yet it's too early There was no such thing as Buddhism. There wasn't, in a sense, even such a person as the Buddha. They called him that later on. So the Buddha hasn't actually got a word to use for this enlightened being. He hasn't got a word handy. He can't just pull one out of the air. So he has to use the terms that they were familiar with. So he he redefines the term Brahmin. And then um, a Brahmin is someone who is, a true Brahmin is someone who's crossed this flood. So, again, that's the main metaphor of the spiritual life here. Having crossed beyond, it says. 
Pavayana. That's what Pavayana means. That's what the title of this um, chapter is. The way to the beyond. Beyond what? Having crossed beyond birth and old age. So what the, the ocean, in a way, is the ocean of birth and old age. And with birth and old age, of course, comes sickness and death. They were all bound up together. So it's as if the people's preoccupation was to do with the problem, the puzzle, if you like, of birth and death and old age. Why do these things exist? Why do we have to go through that? Suffering. Owning nothing. Now, this is really, really significant. Owning nothing. Not attached to sensual existence. Sensual existence means the existence we're in, the existence experienced through the senses. He has discarded this clinging. Free from craving, undistressed, desireless. Gives you a clue there as to why it's so good to be free from craving because when you crave, you experience distress. You know that, don't you, in your own experience. It's okay when you want something and you get it, but it's not okay when you don't get it. Or when you get it and then you don't want it after all. So, um, free from craving, undistressed, desireless. Also, there's this idea of knowledge and wisdom. He, he, he says, a master of knowledge, freed from doubt. So, one who has discarded this clinging is a man who has realised the highest knowledge. So that's an interesting connection there, putting them together in that sentence. One who's discarded this clinging is a man who's realised the highest knowledge. So it seems, from looking at this text, that knowledge consists in some way in not clinging anymore. There's a connection there. When I read this text, I like to think, hmm, wouldn't it be interesting if we didn't have any other Buddhist texts? And this is the only one, like a, a fragment found in the Afghan desert. And it's this guy called Gotama. And there's these 16 people asking him questions. And what did he actually teach? I wonder what we'd make of it. It'd be really interesting, wouldn't it, if you just had that, that little fragment. Okay. Another questioner, Tadea, this time. And he asks, what is the nature of freedom? I'll just read you out the whole question. One in whom, this is Tanisaro's translation again, one in whom there dwell no sensualities, one in whom no craving is found, one who has crossed over perplexity, his emancipation, his freedom, his liberation, what is it like? And this is a very interesting answer. So the Buddha says, one in whom there dwell no sensualities, in whom, one in whom no craving is found, one who has crossed over his perplexity, his emancipation is none other than that. <laughs> that is his emancipation, in other words. So if I rephrase this, today I says, someone who has no craving and has wisdom, what's his liberation like? What's his freedom consist of? And the Buddha says, that's it. That is it. 
What more do you want? You're wise and you're free from craving. That is it. There's no more to be found. That is happiness. Another one, Dotika. Can a student of yours find the calm of Nibbana, enlightenment, for himself? The Buddha says, yes. Any student of my teachings who is eager, intelligent and mindful, here and now, can find the calm of enlightenment for himself. So, here and now. I said this in the question and answers last week. I talked a bit about this. If you practice what the Buddha is talking about here, you can find complete peace, freedom, knowledge, understanding, freedom from craving and happiness now, here and now. Freedom is possible for any person at any time. Seems to be what the Buddha is saying. In my experience, people who are involved in the FWO don't really quite believe that. Um, We say it, and we pay lip service to it, perhaps you could say that, but we don't actually really believe it. I wonder what your response is if I said you can gain enlightenment here and now if you really wanted to. There'd probably be some kind of conflict going on. Yeah, yeah, but not until I've done this, and wait a minute, you know, and I've got a lot of conditioning to overcome, and... This is the kind of way I think we talk to ourselves. I've heard people say things like, oh, well, that's, you know, for years down the line, isn't it? Or even for another lifetime. Or it's for, it's for the people who are really going for it. You know, it's not really for me. But I think that's um, not a helpful attitude to have. I think we as a movement tend to suffer from um, low self-confidence in the spiritual area we used to get a lot of criticism probably still get a lot of criticism but we used to get a lot of criticism for being arrogant and thinking we knew it all but now what I see when I look around the um, the FWO is a bunch of really good people really um, sincere people practicing not many of whom really believe that they can gain enlightenment here and now. It's for some future time. So we put it off, we put it off. But the Buddha here is saying, in this very, very early text, about as close as you can get, probably, and he's saying, any suit of mine can gain enlightenment here and now. I was talking to someone today who works here, and um, what I was saying was, look, you're working here at the centre, This is where your spiritual life is. It's not sort of holding on until you can go on a retreat somewhere, go on a two-week retreat and really do it then, you know, really meditate and practice a lot then and then come back and you're holding on again, just waiting, waiting. And then you go on another retreat. Retreats are really good, but this is where we practice in our actual lived lives. This is where it happens. And this is where it can happen. We don't have to put it off to a better time, a better place, more perfect conditions. That was Dotika's question. He asks another question. Um, We're going to get to know Dotika a little bit. 
Uh, where are we? Page 122. I'm going to move on to um, Sabbatitis' translation because, as I said last week, he puts everything in a, in a very easy-to-understand way. So after the Buddha says, yes, anyone, anyone can, can do it, Dotika says, I can see now that there is, in this world, a man who has nothing. He's referring to the Buddha, of course. A Brahmin, a wanderer. I bow down and honour you, sir. The eye that sees everything. Man of Shakya. Free me from confusion. And the Buddha says, it's not my practice to free anyone from confusion. When you have understood the most valuable teachings, then you yourself will cross the ocean. So... um, I really like Dotika because he's, he, he, only, he only asks a few questions, but you get the definite impression of someone who's really, really sincere. Very emotional. It's amazing what you can pick up just from the way he's asked the question, but very emotional, very devotional. And you get the impression he just wants to surrender himself to the Buddha. It's almost like he just wants to light his feet and say, just take me, just do it. And the Buddha says, uh, I can't do it, actually. It's not my practice to free anyone from confusion. That's the way um, Sadatissa puts it. In one of the other translations, he actually says, I can't. I can't free you from confusion. Only you can do that. So then Dotika says, have pity on me, Brahmin sir. (laughs) He's lovely, isn't he? Just fantastic. Please teach me the way of detachment so that I can know it as it is, so that I can live in this life, in the peace and independence that is free as the air in space. Now, that is so beautifully put, isn't it? That is just wonderful. Some of these questions are so good, you could just reflect on them, couldn't you? Please teach me the way of detachment so that I can know it as it is, so that I can live in this life in the peace and independence that is as free as the air in space. That's the goal. That's what he's after. Complete freedom, just like air in space. There's nothing holding it. There's nothing restricting it. Complete freedom of movement. So then the Buddha says, I will explain that peace, which is not based on hearsay. Yeah? So he's saying, I haven't heard this anywhere. And it's attainable here and now emphasizes that again it is a peace which when a mindful person understands it releases his hold on the world Dotiko again master teacher it can only bring me joy to hear about an ultimate peace which when a mindful person understands it releases his hold on the world so here's the teaching everyone this is it Right. This is what the Buddha says. In every direction, above, below, around, and within, there are things you know and recognize. When you realize that these are the things which tie you to the world, then you can lo- lose the thirst of craving the desire for constant becoming. 
that's it. That is the main message. In every direction, above, below, around and within, there are things you know and recognise. When you realise that these are things which tie you to the world, then you can lose the thirst of craving, the desire for constant becoming. So what did that do to you? I've got no idea, but probably not a lot looking at you. Do you remember last week I said that with these old texts, they're not instant. You can't just open it and go, wow, that's amazing, that's changed me forever. It doesn't work like that. You have to live with them. You have to return to them again and again. And the way I put it was they reveal their wisdom slowly and gradually over a period of time. It might, have, it might be that it did hit you, I don't know. But when I first read that, it didn't hit me particularly strongly. But the thing is that when you keep going back to that answer, another answer is very similar to it, and I'm going to read you a couple more in a minute. It begins to percolate through, and you begin to believe it. Again, belief here, I don't mean believe in the sense of believe it's true as opposed to false. I mean it in the older sense of the word, which means to cherish it, to place your heart upon it. Okay. Where are we? That's Dodger, isn't it? Yeah. So the goal is freedom. And freedom is freedom from attachment and freedom from craving. So let's go back to Metagu. Oh, no, a bit more to say about it. How do we attain this goal? The goal is freedom. It's, um, the goal is having nothing not clinging to anything. And how do you get there? This is what this question is about. How do you attain that? You get there by not clinging. So the goal is a state of non-clinging. You get there by not clinging to anything. So the path and the goal are synonymous. They're the same thing. Say a bit more about that in a minute. Uh, let's go to another one now. Back to Metagu. Master, he said, you are clearly a mind of full development and a master of knowledge. Where on earth do all the different kinds of suffering come from? The Buddha. This is a question about the birth and growth of suffering. I will answer in the way that I myself have found it. Again, he's not repeating anything he's heard there. He's actually found this for himself, which is this. All the different forms of suffering develop from the basic clinging. So do you get what I mean when I was saying earlier, you just get the same answer over and over again. All the suffering that you experience come from basic clinging. So I'm going to say a few words about this word clinging. Clinging or attachment. The Pali is upadi. Upadi. And upadi later, in the later tradition, became a rather technical word. Um, usually translated as attachment. And you get, for instance, the four kinds of upadi in the later texts. You know, the, the Pali texts are full of lists, and here's a list, the four attachments, the four kinds of attachment. But actually, this word, going right back, right back before it was made into a technical term by the Dharma, um, I got this from Tanisara, one of these translators. He said, upadi, in its everyday sense, I'm quoting you here, denotes the possessions, baggage, and other paraphernalia that are 
nomadic family might carry around with it in its wanderings. That's interesting, isn't it? You've probably seen on the telly nomadic families and they're moving from one place to another with their camels or whatever and they've got a whole load of stuff, tents, cooking equipment, stuff for the children, extra clothes, water, food. They've got a whole load of stuff and they have to pile it all onto the mules and the camels and it takes ages and then they go. So it's the, it's the paraphernalia they're carrying. Then he says on the psychological level it denotes everything for which one might have a sense of I or mine, which constantly, consequently one would carry around as a kind of mental baggage. Now, the Buddha was a wanderer, and uh, lots of his followers were wanderers. They just wandered around, but they hardly carried anything. They were allowed four things. They were allowed the robes they stood up in, which was, I think, one or two you know, um, pieces of cloth, a bowl to beg food from, Sleeping, sitting stuff, which meant a couple of extra robes to sit on and to sleep. And some medicines if they needed them. That's it. That's what they carried around. So I really like this term upadi. And uh, the way Tanisaro translates it is paraphernalia. It's all the paraphernalia you carry around with you. You see it when you go on holiday, don't you? How many of you go on holiday flying these days? Probably most of us. And... Um, well, you might be one of these people, but I'm always amused when I go because you see people with these massive, massive cases, two of them, and the hand luggage is as big as my rucksack. They're trying to fit it into the thing and make it go in there. And I think, why are they taking all that stuff? What's the point of that? But that's what we do, isn't it? We think, oh, I must take that, I must take that, and all this stuff you're taking. So all, if you think of that when you go on the holiday, all the extra things you think you take, hair dryer and iPod and oh, mustn't forget that all these stuff well we're doing that all the time just of our own mental baggage we're carrying stuff around with us okay another one this is somebody called Badra Vudha I have come to ask a question. Thirst breaker, wishless, free and wise, beyond time and home, life and pleasure, please, ocean crosser. I think I quoted him last week, didn't I? Just a whole bunch of things that he's calling the Buddha. For all the different people here who have come from different places to listen to your words, tell us about the way you have found and known. Okay, so Nia, you really listen to this, because this is important. There is, in taking things, a thirst, a clinging, a grasping. You must lose it. You must lose it altogether. Above, below, around and within. It makes no difference what it is you are grasping at. When a man grasps, Mara stands beside him. So this is probably my favourite of the Buddha's answers. There is, in taking things, grabbing hold of something, pulling it towards you, a thirst, a clinging, a grasping, and you must lose it. That's it. Lose that grasping. It's so simple, isn't it? 
so simple lose it all together and then this Mara while you grasp Mara stands right beside you and last week I said that Mara stands for spiritual death in a way you could say that Mara stands for drudgery sort of drudging through life not very happily so while you're grabbing onto things trying to bring things towards yourself you're in a state of drudgery really spiritual drudgery now the Buddha so far hasn't given us really many practical things that we can do to bring this state about has he there's no path he hasn't mentioned anything like the threefold way ethics, meditation and wisdom or the five spiritual faculties or the eightfold path there's none of that here it's almost like he's just saying lose it that grasping you've got lose it he's not telling you how you can go about losing it he just tells you to lose it somehow so last week I mentioned that the word Buddha isn't mentioned in this text the word Dharma or Sangha those words are not mentioned in the text either meditation is mentioned just once and not even by the Buddha by one of these other people the questioners and they just called him a meditator but the Buddha doesn't once say look you've got to learn to meditate go off and meditate he doesn't say that um, ethics is not, meditate, uh, is not mentioned virya or energy is not mentioned so there's no path there's just the Buddha probably having gained enlightenment not too long ago and he hasn't worked it out yet he hasn't worked out a path for people so he's just meeting them and saying just drop it drop everything lose it lose this grasping after things doesn't tell people how to do it now there is one section where the Buddha seems to give the beginnings of a path and I'm just going to mention this for information really um, Udaya asks him something and he says can you tell me about the knowledge that frees can you tell me how to remove ignorance and the Buddha seems to give this path um, it's not exactly sh- clear what the path consists of because the terms of the very old terms and they haven't been clarified properly by later translators and they say slightly different things but it's something like this the abandonment of craving for sensual pleasures and unhappiness so those two that's quite interesting they go together isn't it you abandon uh, craving for sense pleasures and, and you abandon unhappiness those two things the rejection of laziness or sloth and the rejection of worry or this is a bit weird or it might be that worry might be the restraint of remorse or feelings of guilt purified by equanimity and mindfulness and preceded so this is strange the Buddha gives this path and it's almost like he says oh yeah and before you do any of that preceded by examination of your mental states so you could if you wanted make up a path from that I think it doesn't look like the later Buddhist tradition did now so what I'm saying is that in these texts one of the startling things is the Buddha says some very strong things about an inner attitude that you need to have but he doesn't tell you how to go about developing this inner attitude and it might be because we don't know who these 16 questioners are it might be that 
that was all taken for granted. Maybe they knew all that. Maybe they already practiced ethics and maybe they already meditated. So there's no need for the Buddha to go into it all over again. When you're reading these old texts, you need to make a distinction between kind of discourses that the Buddha's giving to a number of people, a talk like I'm giving here on the one hand. And in that, he'll be giving a general teaching. But when he's talking to an individual, as he is here, a bunch of individuals, and they're actually asking him questions and he's answering them, that particular person, then you need to be careful about taking that in a general way because it might be a teaching just for that person. But anyway, these 16 people have asked, and the Buddha keeps coming back with the same thing over and over again. Lose it. Lose this grasping, this clinging, this supadi. So it may be that the Buddha hadn't yet worked out a path for people. It doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't have a path, that all this idea of following the threefold way, practicing ethics and meditation, leading to wisdom, is invalid. It just means the Buddha perhaps hadn't worked it out yet. The main thing, though, I think, is that <clears throat> all these lists, all these graduated paths that we find in Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths, the Five Spiritual Faculties, the Seven uh, Factors of Enlightenment, all these lists <clears throat> are aids to this one experience that the Buddha's talking about. Dropping, losing this sense of clinging. It's an inner shift that the Buddha's talking about. And in a sense, it's easy. In a sense, the Buddha doesn't need to say anymore. I'm sure you know what the Buddha's talking about when he says, lose it, lose that craving. You think, oh yeah, life would be easier without that, wouldn't it? So just do it. That's it. That's the message. Just do it. In a way, it's expressed in later when uh, people started painting pictures of the Buddha and making statues of him, it's expressed in his hand gestures, which are called mudras. When you see a Buddha figure, um, their hands are always open. Um, there's this mudra, there's that mudra, there's a meditation mudra. Even when a Buddha is holding something, like the Buddha here, just for those people who aren't here and might listen to this talk later, I'll just say that the Buddha here in this room, he's, he's holding a lotus in his right hand. But how is he holding it? He's not sort of clutching it with his fist. He's just holding it very delicately with his, the tip of his thumb and the tip of his in, uh, middle finger, just like that. And the rest of the hand is open, isn't it, again? It's almost like he could just drop it at any time, let it go. And that is what the Buddha's saying here. That's the gesture. Drop it, lose it let go of craving this is what the spiritual life actually is when it comes down to it it's not complicated actually it's very very simple it's an inner shift from grasping to opening simple grasping opening from wanting to freedom from wanting the only actual practice that the Buddha mentions more than once in this text apart from giving up your attachments, which he mentions, I don't know how many times, I'll have to count that, I'll count that and let you know, is mindfulness. That's the only practice. He mentions that ten times throughout the text. And this is significant, but I'm not going to say more about that. I'll tell you why it's significant next week. So, the Buddha's message, the theme, one of the main themes is giving up of attachments, having nothing. 
So maybe this doesn't seem like a very attractive goal to you. Maybe it doesn't seem very inspiring. You might, like today, ask the Buddha, um, is that it? Is that it? Freedom from craving. Yeah. So what, what, then, what happens then? That's it. Nothing happens then. You're free from craving, and that is your liberation. One of the drawbacks I find when I read these texts is you can't ask them questions. You know, there's a text, and this guy's asking the Buddha loads of things. You say, ask him that, ask him that, and he doesn't, doesn't ask him that. But if I was there, if I was the 17th person there, I would say, but blessed one, you who have crossed the flood, thirst breaker, here's my question. Having a home and possessions and a sexual partner and children seems to make life more enjoyable, actually. Having nothing doesn't seem very attractive, to be quite honest. What do you say to that? That's what I'd ask the Buddha. <laughs> so, no one asked the Buddha that. And I'm thinking, why? Why don't, doesn't anybody say, but wait a minute, what about me? You know, I've got a home, I've got a wife, I love it. What about me? Nobody says that. Not in this text, anyway. Maybe it's because in those, you know, I think we don't realise sometimes how, what strong conditioning we live in. Consumer society, adverts everywhere. Go on a bus and there are adverts. Go on a train, there are adverts. Walk down the street, there are adverts. Turn the telly on, there are adverts. We're just bombarded with things, you know, things you could have if you wanted them. They didn't have that in those days. And maybe it was understood in those days that things aren't that great, actually didn't have iPods, did they, or Apple Mac computers. Things aren't that great. So maybe there was no need to go into this. Maybe it was totally obvious. It's not obvious to us, is it? So we'll have to think it through for ourselves, because the Buddha's not going to answer this one. So I did. thought it through. It seems to me that the issue is really one of inner resources or inner abundance. And I'm going to turn to a psychologist now for a while from the Buddha to a modern psychologist. And it's a book I read quite a few years ago called The Psychology of Romantic Love. Anyone read it? One person. Two. Yeah, you all need to. Psychology of Romantic Love by Robert Johnson. And uh, the theory there, which I don't think it is his theory, I think it's a Jungian theory. The theory about falling in love is that what happens is you've got certain qualities and potential if you like inside yourself which you have not realized yet but they're there somehow somewhere inside yourself and what happens is you find someone attractive and you project that's the term used you project onto them all those un unowned qualities that you've got and it feels great it feels like really liberating because, wow, it's suddenly life becomes really colourful and bright and exciting, doesn't it, when you fall in love? If you can remember that. What's it like falling in love? Um, and, you know, people feel really alive, don't they? And everything see, it takes on new colour and dimension when you're in love. That, the, the theory is it's because you're just tapping into your inner resources. But unfortunately, you don't own them. You think that that person you've fallen in love has got all those things uh, because they're the person who's awakened it within you so you want them you really want them you really really want them 
and you want to hold them to you because then you can sort of have those things through that other person. That's the theory. Quite a good one, I think. So we try to attach ourselves to them. Um, unfortunately, according to quite a lot of research that's been done recently, eternal love lasts for about two years. <laughs> Give or take a few months. What I mean by eternal love is that feeling of um, excitement and joy when you see the person, that kind of buzz that you get. That dies down after a while, doesn't it? It does. Two years is probably about right. And when it dies down, we begin to see that other person a bit more realistically. This is when you get into trouble, isn't it? The relationship starts getting a bit bumpy. You, you see them as they really are, and they haven't really got all those qualities after all. And you can get quite disappointed. But if you can follow through with that and just stay with that person, you might begin to really love them as a person, which is great, isn't it? That initial feeling of love can turn into friendship if you follow through. The trouble is, now you're back to where you were before. All those qualities that you projected out onto that person, they've, they've gone inside you again unconsciously. So then you fall in love again, don't you? You fall in love with somebody else. Another person. And the process all starts over again. So Robert Johnson in this book recommends that once you've got your lover and you've fallen in love and then it dies down a bit, and then if you fall in love with another person, he suggests very strongly, recommends, don't follow through. Don't leave your original love and go for another one. Why is this? Apart from the fact that you'll cause terrible suffering, usually, doesn't it, doing that, what that means is you will never reclaim those parts of yourself. You'll keep doing it over and over again, fall in love with somebody, have a great time for a couple of years, get a bit bored and then go on to someone else. And all the time, these qualities, these wonderful potential that you've got is locked away inside you. So what he says is, this time when you fall in love with a person, don't follow through. And then what happens, that's very difficult not to follow through. It's very difficult and it feels painful. And for a while, because you're not following through, you've sort of denied yourself something that you really want. What then happens is that you feel life is very dull and two-dimensional and grey and drab. One psychologist has called this the swamplands of the soul, which I think is great. You know, you feel like you're just wading through a swamp. Life isn't really worth living, actually. If I can't have that person, then well, it's not worth living without them. But if you do that, it's possible to come out the other end and reclaim those aspects of yourself which you have not owned yet, to really own them. And live your life as if you're in love, but not being in love. Just live a great life. So that's the psychology. So why am I telling you all this? We've gone a long, long way away from the Buddha here. I'm telling you this because I think there's something in it for us here. We can widen this idea out to other things, to things that we possess and things that we'd like to possess. What happens is we tend to fall in love with things with things that we could have. We feel we must have them. There's a new iPod just come out. There's a new mobile telephone. It's, you see it all on the... It's great-looking thing, you know, with brilliant colours, and you can take pictures and watch the telly on it and fly to Italy on it and do all sorts of things. It's great, must have that. And that's what happens, isn't it? You get this very strong urge that you must have this thing, and then you'll be happy if you can have that. 
And advertisers know this, and they try to induce this feeling of love that you have for the outside world, and they try to make you want loads of things. What they do is they show you photographs and movie images of people with this thing, this new thing, and they look so happy. It's like they're having a great time. <laughs> what was those adverts, uh, martini adverts it used to be, didn't it? All these young people having a great time on a boat, drinking martini, and they're all really good-looking young people, and you think, wow, if only I could be there with them, then I'd be really happy. So the message that advertisers use is, if you had this thing, then you would be happy. That's the message. This is evil. (laughs) It's downright evil, yeah. That's not really a word we use in Buddhism. The word is unskillful. It's not unskillful. They're not being unskillful. They are actually preventing people from being happy. So I call it evil. It's evil, folks. They're preventing real happiness from happening because they're taking us away from ourselves. They're taking us away from our true source of real happiness. There's a poem that I often um, recite when I'm doing my meditation courses, and Kamala Gita's not here, is she? That means I can recite it, because you've heard it about ten times now. Anybody been on my meditation course? Okay, so you might know it. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. Until now. I love that poem. As you can tell, I've learned it off by heart. It's all in the first word, enough. You've got enough. If you just sat still, just stayed with your breath, or if you don't want to be with your breath, just sit there, you can open to the life which you've been refusing all your life so far. Just open up to it. This, your life will just open up. You won't find it in a new car, or in a new iPod, or a new mobile phone, or a new home, or a new sexual partner, or a new job. That will feel great for a while, but then you'll be back in a few months to square one. How are we doing for time? Oh, doing okay. Um, Now, the Buddha was homeless, and he had nothing. He was a man of nothing. And so were many of his disciples. And society in India at that time was favourable to this idea, this lifestyle. And they saw it as a valid way of life, and they valued it very highly. So they supported people to do that. When a a homeless wanderer came through the village, the people were very happy to feed them and maybe put them up for a night. It was all worked really well. Also, of course, the weather was favourable. If you live in India, you you do have a rainy season, but it's not like this rainy season. It's not like really cold. You can live in the open out in India. Being a homeless wanderer is not really an option here, is it? I would say not really a viable option in England. No one will support you, probably. You know, if you went around begging with a bowl in the city of Manchester, you wouldn't get very much, probably. It would be a miserable existence, I think. You'd end up selling the big issue on the street corner, and it, it wouldn't be great. 
I wouldn't like to do it anyway. We seem to need a place to live in this culture. And then once we've got a place to live, we then need to seem to fill it with furniture, don't we? Things to sit on, things to sleep on, and things to put your stereo system on and things like that. Then you need cooking utensils. You need heating and lighting. So it seems that we do need to possess things in this culture, even if we only rent them. I mean, I live in a house... And, you know, I don't own the cooker, I rent it from the person who rents the house out. But in a way, I own it for the time I'm there. So even if you're renting, you're kind of owning them. And all this, of course, means having a job, doesn't it? If you've got a place to live and, you know, you've got to eat and all that, you probably need a job. So it's difficult in this culture to live in the way that the Buddha was living. So does this mean that this idea of having nothing and possessionlessness and homelessness... Can we just sort of kick it out of court and say, well, that's not doesn't apply to us? I don't think so, actually. I think it's a really, really good uh, idea. It still holds good now. Having little makes us free. That's the, that's the real message. And we can still do a lot in this direction within our society. It's quite easy to look at a text like that and think, well, that's for those people in India, wasn't it? It doesn't apply to us. And then we let ourselves off the hook. But we can do a lot in this direction. Um, Sangrakshita, the founder of this movement, and my own teacher, he used to talk about building a new society. Let's build a new society, he used to say. And it, we used to really try and do that, actually. We used to, you know, give up our jobs and um, start up little cooperative businesses and run centres, and we did it on hardly anything. We lived in squats in London... Just there were some empty houses and we just squatted them and there was no rent to pay. It left us free to do things which we really valued and believed in. We, we don't do that so much these days. We aren't really, we're not really taking this idea up with a new society and I think it's a bit of a shame. The basic idea of this new society idea was that you base your life on what's really important spiritual life the idea of a new society was a society that helped you to live the spiritual life there's a bunch of people all doing it together so there was comradeship and friendship amongst us cooperation it helped us to practice ethics because we were together we were living together we were working together and you know if you were a bit off with someone you'd be pulled off about it very gently hey that was a bit off wasn't it we meditated together and we renounced everything together. We renounced the world together. We don't want that. We don't want televisions and iPods. Well, we didn't have iPods in those days. Record players. We don't want record players and things like that. We want to live without anything. And it was great, actually. It's really good. It was a way of life that helped people to create this, what I'm calling, inner abundance. And the way we did that was by taking our attention away from all those goodies out there and back inside us now I've recently read a book which I thoroughly enjoyed I've actually written about it for the next newsletter so you can read a bit about it in there it's by a man called Tom Hodgkinson and it's called How to Be Free anybody know it? very very good um, he's actually an anarchist but the great thing about him is uh, he is so uncompromising he says you don't need anything I'm just going to read you some of the uh, chapters of the titles. Titles of the chapters. The tyranny of bills 
and the freedom of simplicity. Rejects career and all its empty promises. Stop competing. Uh, Death to shopping. (laughs) Or fleeing the prison of consumer desire. Stop moaning, be merry. (coughs) Live mortgage free, be a happy wanderer. Um, Stop worrying about your pension, get a life. Fantastic, isn't it? Uh, There's a couple more I just want to read to you. Uh, Stop working, start living. Depose the tyrant wealth. It's really great fun, this book. It really is um, a good laugh as well. Anyway, in the chapter Depose the Tyrant Wealth, he's talking about how can you become free so that you don't have to do anything don't have to work in a job you don't want. And he says, well, one way is to try and get rich so you don't have to work. He said, that's a very difficult path. And he quotes you how many people are, are rich enough in this, in this country not to have to work. And it's a very small percentage. And he says, it's unlikely that you're going to manage that. So he says, instead of trying to be rich, we might try to be poor. Simply by embracing thrift and rejecting consumer googles. I don't know what a google is. Baubles, I suppose. Not needing money by reducing our needs, can have the same liberating effect as not needing money by making a lot of it. The same liberating effect. Learning to live within limited means gives a great sense of security because you become free of wanting more and then therefore free of struggle. To be free from poverty, then, we need, paradoxically, to embrace poverty. To be free of poverty, poverty... We need to embrace poverty. If we were all poor, then we would all be rich. That's true, isn't it? Because you know, being, being poor and rich is relative terms. So if we're all poor, we'd all be rich. The answer is to be creative with what you have rather than to resign yourself to the slavish state of constantly wanting more. That is what the Buddha's saying, isn't it? Although Tom Hodgkinson has said it is in a much more up-to-date way that we can understand. That's it. Stop wanting. Stop wanting more. Just live. So giving things up, it becomes obvious when you read Tom Hodgkinson's book that giving things up is not life-denying, it's life-affirming. When you stop being in love with the little things in life, the things that you want, you start to really love your life as it is. Mara is death. Mara is drudgery. He wants you to become a drudge. Mara wants you to work in a job that you don't like to earn loads of money. He really would love you to do that. He wants you to take out a mortgage so you have to keep doing that job. He wants you to buy things, loads of things. Plasma TV screen, newest model of the mobile phone, Apple Mac, latest car, iPod. He really wants you to go out and do these things. He wants you to watch telly in the evening, all evening. Go out to bars and clubs and get smashed on Saturday nights. And then go shopping to Sainsbury's, Ikea and B&Q on Sundays. (laughs) That's what he wants you to do, folks. And if you do that, he can just stay at home and have a good time. He doesn't have to do anything at all. He'll have nothing to do. To give things up, though, you need a certain inner abundance. 
But to gain in abundance, you need to give things up. It's a kind of dialectical relationship. So what happens is, you give something up. Okay, do I need this mobile phone? Nah, I don't actually do it. Throw it away. Give it to a charity. Liberate yourself from that blasted thing going off every five minutes. What a liberation that would be. Wouldn't it be great? Give something up and then feel the privation of that. Feel the loss. Feel the sense of, ooh, I want it. Just feel that. But wait. Wait for something to grow inside you in response to that. Allow your inner abundance to make up for the fact that you can't have that or you've given that thing away. And then, once you've done that, you can give something else up. And the whole spiritual life is one of, oh, I don't need that anymore, do I? Give it up. And then you feel a bit, mm, a bit down about that and then you just wait. Wait for the life to grow within you. It makes you freer. It makes you more independent. You can begin to look to yourself rather than to external things to entertain you and nourish you. And it gives you tremendous self-confidence. So that's the main theme of this uh, text, the first main theme. We'll look at the second main theme next week. But what the Buddha said, in a way, isn't that earth-shattering, is it? If there was such a person as Bhavari, and he did send these 16 disciples along, they would have known this already, because if you remember, the first line of the text, Bhavari was in search of detachment, in search of non-attachment. So they all knew this already. In a sense, maybe the Buddha was not telling them anything new. Maybe he was just saying it really well. Maybe he was exemplifying it wonderfully. Maybe that's what made the difference. But actually, I don't think the Buddha yet has said anything which is that different from what they already knew. And I don't think the Buddha said anything yet, which is that different from any other religion, actually. Apart from perhaps Judaism, because they, they don't seem to be at all into giving things up. They seem to... I'm not being anti-Semitic here, but, you know, I live, I live in a Jewish area, and they seem to see um, uh, outer abundance as a reflection of their inner abundance. They're a bit different from other religions and I think but most other religions have this idea of renunciation don't they and giving things up and you'll be happier the kingdom of God is within you that's an idea we get from Christianity isn't it so in a sense I think the Buddha hasn't said anything all that new yet there's nothing definitively distinctively Buddhist in what he said nothing that sets it apart from the religions that were already in India at that time, and nothing that sets it apart from other religions, the world religions. That comes next week. The Buddha says something else, which is incredible. He says something which is absolutely startling. I'm not going to tell you what it is now, of course. <laughs> I, want, I want you to come in two weeks. <laughs> but he says something which is... <clears throat> You could say philosophically, metaphysically, the basis upon which you can give things up happily. He makes it so that you think, oh yeah, 
that's exactly what I want to do because that's the way things are. But that's for next week. So um, that's it for this evening, I think. Yep. And we'll go downstairs for a cup of tea and then, what, in 15 minutes, come back and we'll have question and answers. Constant becoming. Becoming is uh, <clears throat> it's later taken up and kind of made into a technical idea, really, becoming. But uh, the idea is that <clears throat> I suppose it's to do with habitual behaviour. Through your volition, and usually it's volition of grasping and craving, you're constantly uh, remaking your world. So the idea in Buddhism is that there's actually one of the questions which I'm, I was hoping to go on to in the last week, but I could mention it here. One of the questions is, um, <clears throat> how do we get past the seamstress? And luckily the Buddha seems to know what the question means. And the seamstress, it ends up is um, craving. And that's a very powerful image, I think. So what that suggests is that um, there's this great big cloth of the world that's all um, connected. It's all put together by the seamstress. She is, the seamstress of craving is making this cloth. She's making the world over and over again. I found a very good image, and it reminds me of this poem by Naomi Sheep Have Nye. It's quite a popular poem called Kindness. <coughs> You only really know kindness when you lose things. Do you know that one? Um, should have mentioned that in the talk, shouldn't I? Lose things. <laughs> but uh, what she says at one point is um, <clears throat> something about uh, when you're really suffering and you really see the size of the cloth. You really see the size of the cloth. And the cloth is one of suffering. And how big is the cloth? Well, it's the whole world. It covers the whole world. <coughs> so the seamstress is making this cloth of the world, which is uh, also the cloth of, crave, uh, of suffering. Craving and suffering are just two sides of the same coin. <coughs> so it's like we keep on doing the same thing and remaking our world the same as it was before. <coughs> so if you keep on doing the same thing, you keep on getting the same result. So really that becoming so what the Buddha is saying is uh, why don't you try something else for a change you know why don't you stop doing that and try and doing that and see what happens see if you can make a different world for yourself you get the idea mm. <coughs> did I repeat that question I didn't did I Okay. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. I keep forgetting to do that. Oh, yeah, Matthew. <coughs> I've tried to imagine what it might be like not to crave, and I find it very difficult. Uh, for example, um, if I'm thirsty, I crave a really nice cup of Earl Grey, though possibly <laughs> water would be quite adequate. But if I put myself in the shoes of a monk at that time, I'd probably have to go for hours 
without water and deal with that craving on a very basic level that seems almost a human need. And, okay, I can boil myself without water and stamps and um, pepper and so on. But I can't even begin to imagine what it might be like trying to deal with those petty cravings. And I wonder whether it might be helpful dealing with bigger cravings such as Can I find it hard to repeat this question? How does one begin to transform when tiny little cravings are translated into action? You began by saying, uh, I can't imagine you know, living a life without craving. So how do you go about doing that? But then you said, (coughs) you gave an example of when I'm thirsty, I'm really craving a cup of tea or a glass of water. But of course, the Buddha wasn't talking about that. (coughs) I don't think. I don't think that when the Buddha talks about giving up craving, he's not talking about (coughs) the body's need for things, because you need water and you need food. Of course, we can crave after food that we don't really need, and the Buddha would have been, that would have been his target kind of thing. But if you're hungry or thirsty, that's not craving. There is, there's a very important distinction there. So the craving the Buddha's talking about is just wanting things for yourself all the time. It's not the, the fulfilling of bodily functions which have to be fulfilled. <coughs> for instance, if you don't get a new iPod, I don't know why I'm... Uh, <laughs> if you don't get... Uh, <laughs> Something else. It's the people I live with, honestly. Uh, what if I don't get this new CD that's just come out, nothing's going to happen to me. I just won't get the new CD. I'll, I'll still live perfectly, you know. But if I don't drink water, then I'm going to die. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the <coughs> it's the um, it's that very tricky area, isn't it? Of you do need food and you do need water, but the question is how much do you need? Yeah. Apparently, you need a lot of water, don't you? They keep telling us we're probably not drinking enough water. Actually, you need to drink a lot more. But food is another thing, and um, 
Yeah, that's tricky. It's just very, very tricky how much food you need and what kind of food you need. Um, when does eating food become giving into craving and when does it, when is it just because you're hungry and your body needs it? That's difficult. I don't know. I haven't really got an answer to that. You just have to, you know, really try and be mindful of what's happening as it's happening. Yeah. But um, it is amazing how much, how little you can, you know, do with. Um, I'm something of an insomniac, especially at the moment. It's amazing how much you can do without very little sleep. It's quite amazing. Sometimes it's two or three hours. And if I think, oh, God, I've only had two or three hours, I'll never get through the day, then it makes life really hard. But I think, oh, well, I can't need it. You know, I'm still tired, but um, well, you, I can't need it, can I? Otherwise, I'd sleep. So um, I think, oh, well, I'm just a bit tired, but that's okay. It's just that little... Um, uh, shift in attitude, which is makes all the difference, really. Yeah. We had a day about sleep. We had an epileptic manic attack on, on sleep. Yeah. But I think it's it's living in such a con consumer society. Yeah. Well, that's their problem, not yours, <laughs> isn't it? You don't need to worry about that, do you? You are who you are. Mm. <laughs> yes, I mean, they Think what my daughter thinks of me. I'm just thinking, I mean, actually other people might have some questions, so, yeah. Any other questions? Okay, so the question was about what I said earlier about um, uh, the FWO in the old days with the idea of a new society and how we used to give things up and give our jobs up and you know, just get stuck in and build centres and so on. And how would I like to see that manifesting now? Um, that's a good question. It isn't one I've given a lot of thought to because <coughs> I... I tend not to think about what other people should do 
to be honest. Um, I know I like doing that. And if I'm doing it on my own, it's going to get a real drag, you know, so I'd like other people to be involved. But um, in those days, uh, I don't think I'm being nostalgic here. I think there was something really valuable about it. There was a sense of adventure and a sense of, wow, we can do anything. You know, we don't have to do everything else that everyone else, everybody else is doing in society. We can live a completely different life if we want to. And it was really exciting, really exciting. And as I said last week, I think this centre is fantastic. I love it. Um, but I think we could... What I love about it is the message it's giving to the rest of the world. Well, the rest of Manchester. Most people who know about it anyway. Uh, it's giving a message of non-consumerism right in the heart of consumerism in a way. That there's another way of going about life. And what I'd like to see is uh, us saying that more uncompromisingly. What I liked about Tom Hodgkinson's book is How to Be Free is quite uncompromising. But it was also really good fun to read and you could tell that he was really enjoying himself. And wouldn't it be great if there was a whole bunch of people who lived around here on hardly anything and were so happy to do that? And wouldn't that give another message? I remember Sangarachta years ago saying he thought order members shouldn't drink alcohol. Not that there might be a problem in drinking the odd glass of wine, but if we don't drink any alcohol at all, we are giving a message to people that it's possible to be happy without that prop. And the reason to give that message is because alcohol, as we know, wrecks lives. So if you can show that you can be quite happy without it, it's such a good thing. And I think we could do the same with the television, actually. Throw it out. You don't need it. I live in a house where there is a telly, but I said I didn't want to pay the um, licence fee because I don't, I don't want to watch a telly. And if we all stop paying licence fees, then they'll say, oh, right, well, they don't want this anymore. It's not that I'm against the telly in principle because obviously there are some good things on planet Earth. I've never seen it, but it sounds like it was a great thing to watch. Um, Moksha has bought a whole load of Mighty Bush, which is good fun, but I could easily do without it. Mighty Bush, it's good fun for half an hour, but it's not great, is it? It's not like going to change my life for the better. So yeah, I think what we do can give a message and if we could all live together as Buddhists and completely renounce what the world is trying to offer us, it would give a lot of other people a lot of hope for more happiness, I think. I think it would just be great if we really went for it, you know, really took ourselves seriously and said, no, nah, we don't want that. Don't want you, all that stuff that I mentioned earlier, I won't go through the list again. <laughs> we don't need them. We don't need them, folks. We're happy without them. That's what I'd like to see. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And uh, the flowers are beautiful. Mm. Colors, you know. Don't need any of that. Really. Now, I wouldn't mm. say we mm. don't need heating in here, because if we were all shivering, we wouldn't listen to a word you were saying. No. Because our concentration. And yes, we do need drinks and 
Yes, uh, so the question is, what about beauty? Do we need beauty? Uh, I think it depends on what you mean by need, doesn't it? Because there are different levels of need. <coughs> Obviously, you need to be warm and you need food and you need drink, and we've had all that. So there are certain needs that you need fulfilling. Um, there are other needs that you can live without, but beauty, I think beauty, and here I mean real beauty, not just kind of attractiveness, does help the spiritual life. One of the things that I really like to do is listen to really good music. <coughs> On my solitary retreat, I took a little CD Walkman. don't know what the Buddha would have thought about that. And the complete um, keyboard works of William Byrd. That's the kind of thing I'm into. And I listen to one or two of his um, pavans and galliards every day and really listen to them a couple of times and really try to really focus on them almost as if it was a meditation. And I found it so beautiful. And I would say that really helped my meditation. It didn't distract me from it. So <clears throat> I think that's another thing, really. I suppose if you were living in India as a renunciate, you'd find your beauty in um, the sky and the trees and so on and the, 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 your surroundings. But it's a bit different from us, I think, you know, in, in this culture, um, especially in this weather. It's sometimes a bit hard to find anything that's really beautiful. So I think we need to be a bit careful about that. Um, so the whole path of renunciation is not one of uh, necessarily renouncing beauty. Um, I think it's unfortunate some of the Theravada monks, the ones that go right back to the time of the Buddha, um, they say they're, they're not allowed to listen to music because the Buddha said that music was a distraction. Um, and, you know, 99% of music is a distraction, is it? It's just a thing going on in the background and it's a bit of a drag, actually. Um, but I think that it's a pity to sort of throw out, you know, all music because some music is an expression of really deep feeling and understanding and uh, be ashamed not to, you know, um, expose yourself to that. So, yeah, the thing is that when you start, start renouncing things, you probably can't afford much in the way of beauty. Like, I'd like to have some really nice art in my room, but I can't afford to buy it. So you have to have reproductions, don't you? And in a way, that's a pity, but it's not such a big sacrifice when you think of what you're getting, you know, in terms of meditation and friendship and so on. What would the Buddha have said if you'd have asked him what about attachment to child and one's children? Um, he was asked that, not in this text, but on, in other texts. Have you come across them? Um, well, he more or less says, yeah, having children is delightful, but it's also painful. Because um, he had a child himself, didn't he? Um, I've got a child, and it's utterly delightful having a child. But... Um, it's not so delightful when she's having a hard time, when she's unhappy, when she's having struggles with her life. It can be painful. And in a way, that's fine, isn't it? That's just part and parcel of loving people. Um, so 
I suppose the Buddha's answer is, yeah, having children is great, but it can really be very painful as well. So you just have to bear that in mind when you decide to have children. The Buddha, you know, left his child, which is, you know, in, be quite controversial, wouldn't it, these days? And he left his child because he wanted to concentrate completely on living the spiritual life. Um, and I think that's, um, you know, a valid decision to make. Um, I don't live with my daughter, although I love her to pieces. But, um, you know, I know what I want to do with my life, and it's something else, really. So you have to sort of weigh these things up, don't you? Dotika. They wanted um, uh, complete freedom now. And um, the Buddha said, uh, things we know and less know, mm. in every direction, um, carry into the world. Mm. I'm sure you're struck by that. Because I'm wondering if the Buddha was saying it's the way we look at things, actually, uh, that gives rise to clinging. Mm. That um, you look at things and you think that there are things. I do, yeah. It's going to be hard to uh, um, summarise that question, but it's to do with Dotika's question about mm. saying I wanted free, he wanted freedom. And the Buddha said, um, whatever you recognise above, below, around and within, you must lose it, lose that you know, attachment to it. Um, and that's really interesting, isn't it? And I think it's interesting, you know, who knows what the actual Pali word was for recognise, but recognise is an interesting word, isn't it? Recognise. And again, it's you're making up a world all the time of things, things that you recognise. <coughs> and those things that you recognise, well, some of them you want and you get attached to and some of them you don't want and you reject. And while that process is going on, if wanting those things that you want and pushing those things that you reject, you're not free. You're just not free. You're in a process of pushing and pulling. So I think what the Buddha was saying is, lose it. Uh, that's a really... Um, I'm not sure that the Buddha actually used those terms, actually. I think that was Sadatissa's gloss on it, but I think it's a good gloss. Lose it. Um, drop it. Stop doing that. And life will be much easier. So it's as you say, it's like what the Buddha's saying is, life is a process. And just be with that process but what we try to do is fix things mm -hmm. I want this I don't want that mm -hmm. and that just causes unnecessary suffering really I think that's the interesting thing about these Buddhist texts that the, what the Buddha seems to be saying is you are suffering unnecessarily mm -hmm. and it's very simple all you have to do is stop grasping all after those things that you want and pushing those things that you don't want away it's as simple as that and if you could just stop doing that Life would be so much better. You'd enjoy life. So I think that's it, really. I really like what you said about uh, giving something up and uh, waiting to see what happens. Yes. That's so sad, you know, as well as those um, seeing through things. Yeah, <coughs> giving things up and just seeing what happens. It's a good process. If you ever go on retreat, 
um, especially if you go on solitary retreat, you experience this process, don't you? You've done this, haven't you, loads of times. You go away and you go away from, you know, your own house and you sleep in an uncomfortable bed usually. And um, you haven't got all the things around you, in my case, stereo system with the complete works of William Byrd. And actually, I did take them with me. Um, but, you know, you're just in a different place and you haven't got all the things that keep you going. You're just like on a solitary, you know, I just sit there and it's me. That's it. Just me. There's no one else to talk to. And I don't even have a program. William Bird, yeah. <laughs> Only allow that for half an hour a day, though. And there's not even a program, and that can be strange. And I didn't even take a watch, so I'd wake up and I had no idea what time it was. There was one time I was having lunch and I went out for a walk and it was dark. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's kind of liberating to be in that situation, but also. Um, you don't know where you are. You know, all your usual things that you navigate by are gone. And that's one of the great things about this text. It's almost like he's saying, all those things you navigate by, why don't you try to live without them? Just let them go and see what life's like without them. It's kind of exciting, isn't it? I find it exciting, the whole idea of just living without those props and navigation points. I agree with all that. <coughs> what do you feel about that? That's the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how to uh, put that question in a few words. You were saying that you found what I was saying about children and what I said the Buddha was saying about children disturbing because of uh, inter-being, inter that we were all interconnected, which is true, of course. Um, I think that the, the, the difficult thing is to love without being attached, isn't it? And... Um, what I try to do with my life is to love people but not be attached to them, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. And what I mean by attached is emotionally dependent upon them for my happiness. And I think that's what the Buddha was getting at, that when you're attached, what that means is emotional dependence. And what emotional dependence means is you depend on that person behaving in a certain way for your happiness. And that is an unskillful thing because it means you're putting pressure on other people to behave in a certain way for you. And I think that's what the, the nub of it really is, the whole thing about attachment. Inter-being inter and interpenetration, uh, if we want it to happen without pain, has to happen freely, completely freely. There has to be a free flow of energy. And attachment 
tends to stop that free flow of energy. It tends to try to fix things in a certain way. Um, and that's why parent-children relationships can be a bit sticky because um, the parent wants the child to stay as they were. My mum still sees me as like five years old and wants me to be like that. And it's a drag and it's painful. It's painful for her and it's painful for me. And it's just attachment to the way things used to be. So um, it's not that loving other people is unskillful. It's the attachment that we bring with it and the wanting that person to be a certain way for our benefit. So in other words, it's love without selfishness. That's interpenetrate, interbeing. Yeah. Yeah. right yes yeah we do that with our children we also do it with our friends to a certain extent we, you know we we like our friends to be a certain way and we try to make sure they're like that with us and it just it's not great suffering but it causes a little bit of suffering you know it makes us feel less free than we could be yeah what if I didn't you had a question at one again I'm sure there is. So the question is, is there a distinction between healthy and unhealthy renunciation? Yeah, I should have gone into that, shouldn't I? That would have been a good area to go into. God, there's so much to say about that, isn't there? But yes, there is. Uh, <laughs> 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 Can't really get away with that, can I? I'm on, I'm on uh, being recorded here. Um, it all depends on your motivation, of course know why you're renouncing things um, it's possible I suppose to renounce things to look good you know so that people think hey he's a real renuncer he's really getting on with the spiritual life and actually really want those things but you're renouncing to make you you look good or it might be you're renouncing because um, you've been brought up in a certain way um, to deny yourself things and you come across Buddhism and you come to this talk you think hey I can just do that. I can just, you know, deny myself that certain things. So I talk, I've talked, I've mentioned twice now about Buddhism being life-affirming, not life-denying, and that, that Mara is life-denying. So I think you, you need to um, think in those terms, really, that when you're renouncing something, is it, is it going to um, make your life better in the long term? Is it going to make you happier, freer? more carefree because that's what we want isn't it will it do that so you know you just need to be a bit careful about how you go about it i suppose yeah but it's a good point and i should really have thought about that and added that that point into the talk yeah we better stop folks because it's just gone 20 past nine and i want a bit of time just to sit and be quiet and um read out part of the text that we've been looking at this evening. Is that all right? Has anybody got a last burning question?